1: Welcome to episode 121 of TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend, co-host, and THR's great chief TV critic, Dan Feinberg. Hi, Dan.
0: How are you doing, Leslie? How are you holding up? I know that this is probably the most difficult stretch of the entire calendar for you. Did you survive Upfront's week, or are you currently a hologram?
1: um i'm both i survived and i'm a hologram i don't know um i'm good you know it there's no cw presentation today that's coming up next week everything was virtual so getting to watch that with with a puppy on my lap and from you know from the comfort of my own home hard to beat
0: definitely not having to for example go to a 6 a.m upfront presentation at universal nbc is a definite positive so maybe don't return to all of the old ways in the future broadcast networks. <laughs> Maybe. Yes.
1: Yes. But how about that Friends reunion trailer? Huh? That got me pretty excited. That was that was neat to see it, you know, leading off or wrapping up, I should say, the Warner Media front presentation.
0: I, I definitely watched it and it definitely looks like it will be a Friends reunion and that is what the kids have been waiting for for many a moon now so i'm sure we'll be talking much more about that in the week to come (laughs) that's a good cryptic teaser for next week's episode dan i like what you did there we've got Uh, the entire cast of friends on next week's podcast exclusive that's a total lie we do not have the entire cast of friends we we couldn't even get freaking marcel to come on the podcast (laughs) and you and you know that if we could have gotten Marcel on the podcast, even if Marcel doesn't really make any noise, we would have had Marcel on the darn podcast. Yeah,
1: yeah. well, uh, in, in other news, I, I do want to shout out one, one pretty incredible story uh, this week. Our, our colleague Lacey Rose sat down with Billy Porter uh, for this week's cover story for, in THR. And Billy Porter opened up a, um, that and said that he is HIV positive and has been for 14 years. And it was a powerful read and he stood in his truth and yeah it was i i can't remember the last thing that i read that was that moving
0: and and billy porter is someone who always has been upfront and out front and public about so much and he's always been so exposed and open and it you know was powerful to see this is something that he hasn't been talking about previously but also to to see him doing it and to see him doing it in this in this way it's really very much worth the read
1: yeah it's incredible um, but yeah, what about you, Dan? How are you holding on? You're constantly watching more TV than anybody I know.
0: It definitely. This has been a week where I've been treading water trying to work in the daytime and trying to watch many, many screeners at night for many, many shows. But, you know, as as I've said all through this entire glorious pandemic-y thing, um, from my perspective, it's always better to have too much to do than too little and, you know, count blessings at every turn. So, I'm doing that.
1: (laughs) Well said. Well, what do you say we kick off the show with headlines? Getting started. In casting news, Rebecca Ferguson will star in dystopian drama Wool for Apple from showrunner Graham Yost. Jeremy Irvine will play gay hero Alan Scott in Green Lantern for HBO Max and Greg Berlanti. Sara Ramirez will play a queer, non binary character on the Sex and the City revival for HBO Max. And Netflix has found its new Wednesday Adams, tapping you alum Jenna Ortega to star in its live action series from Tim Burton.
0: In new series pickups, the Vampire Diaries co creator and TV's top five guest Julie Pleck will oversee an adaptation of Vampire Academy for Peacock. That seems likely. Very on brand. (laughs) Uh, Kumail Nanjiani will play the founder of Chippendales in a limited series for Hulu. Netflix has picked up an untitled Bridgerton spinoff that will be written by Shonda Rhimes as the flagship also plans a showrunner change for its third and fourth seasons as the streamer plots an expansion of its hit franchise, which also seems pretty much on brand.
1: Yes. HBO Max will celebrate the 20th anniversary of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone with a trivia competition show and a retrospective special as Warner Media begins to, to create additional value from its beloved franchise. The streamer and other news will also bring back Project Greenlight, this time with Issa Rae at the helm.
0: And in shows on the move news, Bubble CBS dramas Clarice and Seal Team will move to the streamer Paramount Plus for their upcoming seasons. Joining them on the Viacom CBS streamer will be the long delayed but eventually premiering second season of Evil.
1: And you'll hear much more about Upfronts in our second topic this week. And if you're really curious, go back and check out our interview with Jenny Lumet from February in episode 107 about Clarice and how it was originally developed for streaming, but David Nevins wanted it for CBS, and now, yep, it's going to streaming. In executive news this week, Bill Abbott's former Hallmark Lieutenant Michelle Vacari is out at Hallmark as new CEO Wanya Lucas shuffles her executive regime. And you can listen to our Thanksgiving holiday special interview with Michelle from back in episode 97 to hear about Hallmark's evolution under Wanya's reign.
0: In renewal news, Amazon has given an early season two pickup for its highly anticipated, but still yet to actually premiere, Wheel of Time adaptation. So don't think that you missed the first season or anything. And Chad will return for a second season on TBS.
1: And wrapping up headlines this week, Kaylee Cuoco has inked a sprawling new overall deal with Warner Media, And you can hear more about her big plans as a producer in our interview f- uh, with her from our 100th episode from December. And with all that out of the way, Dan... It's time to dive into this week's top five.
0: Number one. Leading off. And this is rather impressive because if you had said, what are the chances that Upfronts Week would not be the number one topic on our podcast in Upfronts Week, I'd have said, you crazy. But no, it takes a large, large news story to take the number one spot away from Upfronts. And there is one. We are starting this week with the massive landscape-shifting merger news that everyone's been talking about without necessarily actually knowing anything, AT&T will spin off its media and entertainment assets and merge them with Discovery in a deal that is said to be worth, dun-dun-dun, $43 billion. So basically, Leslie, tell us what we actually do know at this moment, because... We're not really going to have a concrete resolution to this, apparently, for a year. So there's just going to be a lot of speculation for a long time.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's basically a holding pattern. This is kind of what we saw with Disney and Fox, where it's going to have to clear regulatory hurdles before it gets the approval. So it's a holding game until then. But... What we do know is that the companies have said in a press call that the merger will create a, quote, global leader in entertainment. And in a more telling statement that basically, in a nutshell, explains the why behind the deal is it'll create a stronger competitor in global streaming. So in a larger sense, what does this mean? It means that after regulatory hurdles Likely to come, uh, the approval is likely to come in 2022. Discovery's David Zasloff will take the leader in unscripted programming at Discovery and now add a massive vault of intellectual property, including Warner Brothers film and TV libraries, including all things DC Comics and Harry Potter and Game of Thrones and the like, and Warner Media assets, including HBO and streamer HBO Max, and lead a combined entity as CEO. So these are two companies that complement one another. So when you think of, of scripted programming and streaming, HBO Max has made a lot of inroads in the last year since it launched. It's got a lot of buzzy programs, but and even more than that, it's got a huge amount of library, and, and a lot of it is scripted. The thing that they really don't have is a lot of unscripted stuff. So yes, they have, WarnerMedia owns big unscripted tentpoles like The Voice, for example, but Discovery is by far the leader in unscripted and lifestyle programming. So it's taking all of those discovery brands and combining them together with Warner media assets. And it's going to create a, basically this media con- conglomerate that together will basically provide scale. So Think about it this way. You know, everyone needs assets, right? And if you look at how Viacom and CBS remerged a, f- a few years ago um, and look at how Disney buying Fox a- assets and what that meant that Disney was able to do, this is basically the why behind the deal. So um, when everything is said and done you are going to have a combined company with discovery and warner media that will be bigger than netflix and bigger than nbc universal and behind only disney as the second largest media company in the united states so just let that sink in for a second the second largest media company in in the us so and bigger than netflix and this is like I said. These are two brands that, that complement one another, and this is exactly why everyone is doing this. It's why Amazon is is reportedly in talks to acquire MGM and its library. You need content, and you need you need scale, and that's that's why you're seeing more of these mergers happen, and that's why Disney bought Marvel. That's why Disney bought Fox assets, and that's that's why everyone is is hunting for IP and these big world franchises because they need to own their content and. Like I always say on this show, Dan, and you know, like if you take nothing away from our podcast, chances are the answers to whatever you're looking for is either gonna is it, gonna be money and an IP, and in this case, this is both. So that's where we are right now.
0: You are definitely taking this though as as much more than, of a positive than a lot of the media reports were taking it when oh, the news began. I'm not taking to... it
1: as a positive or <laughs> okay. a negative because there is a lot. I mean. If you, I'm, I'm interrupting you here, Dan, but the the thing that that is going to be insane is this is AT&T basically saying, yeah, we shouldn't have bought Time Warner and we don't want to be in the media and entertainment business. And it's also uh, obviously after an incredibly fraught year that saw CEO Jason Kalar come in under John Stanky, the AT&T CEO. And say we're going to shake things up. We're going to release these movies day and date in theaters and on streaming. And he just pissed off a lot of Hollywood top producers and stars. And he completely upended the whole the whole industry. And then he pushed out two seasoned television executives in Bob Greenblatt and Kevin Riley. And now this is basically AT and saying, "Yeah, whoops, that's an expensive whoops." And at the same time. Look at all how people and more war- at Warner Media. Look at how that in- the face of the entire company has changed. Longtime executives, you know, Richard Plepler gone. Like no one, I never thought that I, there would be a world in which Plepler wasn't at HBO. He is an institution. He built that network and gone. He's got an overall deal at Apple, right? You know, think of all the the the, the people, the staffers who have weathered the turmoil under AT&T, all the executive realignments, all the firings, all the different people, you know, it's just he's it's a complete cultural change for Warner Media under AT&T. And now that's it's 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 like, look, it's, it's like what we've been through, Dan, in the last couple of years with THR changing ownership a few times. So, you know, that's never a fun process. It certainly hasn't been for any of us. And, you know, on a bigger scale, think of it that that's how you can think of it you know for for Warner media so yeah
0: yeah right. definitely definitely it's important to get that perspective cuz this is this is from the AT&T perspective a large failure or let's just say they tried something that didn't work however you want to put it they tried something that didn't work and in the process of it not working they laid off thousands of people you know you talked about the institutions at these places that they laid off but they also laid off a lot of People who were simply employees and, you know, who who didn't get the no doubt large exit packages that someone like Richard Butler got. So, yeah, this is something where AT&T tried to do something very ambitious and fairly soon after they tried doing it, they're backing down and and no longer attempting to do that. And it's obviously something ambitious that's coming up now, but also putting it in putting the whole thing in charge of David Zasloff. Pretty much says what we were doing and the people who were doing it weren't necessarily working. Let's get someone different in there. Yeah, this this is a a large shakeup and it's a large shakeup that undoes the work of a previous large shakeup. I, I think it I think the thing you mentioned about Amazon and MGM, which hasn't happened and is still in the the rumor stage. We we are maybe, and we've been talking about this now for two years you know, what is happening with the world of disparate streamers and all of these different countries? When is there going to be some condensing? This may be the moment at which you start seeing condensing. This may be the moment at which if, you know, if you got all excited about Discovery Plus a couple months ago when it premiered and HBO Max and uh, HBO Max now with ads and all of that, maybe some of these things are going to start coming together, which in the long run Maybe will be convenient and helpful for the customers, but as we also say every week it's not really about you if it's more convenient for the customers that is a that is a happy accident
1: yeah and and the other you know piece that we should talk about is you know Zaslov told reporters this week that the combined company would spend twenty billion dollars on content that's far more than any of the big spending streamers, and it also opens up spending for hbo and hbo max and warner media at a time when they had kind of been under a, a cash crunch under at&t and you know i don't know if we talked about this on the show before dan but this shit's it's expensive to make programming it's expensive to lure top producers and top showrunners and sign overall deals and compete when everyone else is trying to scale up and, and race for ip and etc so when you've got you know a company like HBO and HBO Max that is trying desperately to remain competitive and remain at the at the fore uh, as a front runner in the content and streaming wars, and they're under a cash crunch under AT and and now you've got someone coming in going, yeah, you're gonna we're gonna spend twenty billion dollars on content, yeah, that's a, a game changer. And you know the other piece that you know it will be interesting to see is Zazov really has no relationships with anyone in the scripted community. And it's gonna have his work cut out for him trying to repair talent relations after Jason Kalar kind of upended Hollywood with you know the day and date move. So, as for Kalar, yeah, sources say uh, tell The Hollywood reporters, Kim Masters, and the New York Times are all reporting that Kilar's already negotiating his exit. So, again, yeah, just what what a roll of the dice and a and a complete crapshoot.
0: So, and we will spend probably some portion of the next year discussing new things as we know them. Absolutely. Okay, so that brings us up to what under any other circumstances surely would have been our number one story of the week. Instead, coming in at number two. Number two. Oh yeah, upfronts. But honestly, and let's be completely honest, when we both started with this, this was... The week of weeks. This was everything. Everybody was trying to find out about all their favorite bubble shows. And everybody was speculating on what TV shows would be put on what night and who would get what lead in. And as friend of the podcast, Preston Beckman would be quick to tell us lead ins do still matter even in 2021. And they do. Let's not pretend they don't. On the other hand, and we're going to talk about this. NBC did its upfront presentation on Monday, and I don't know that they mentioned what night of the week anything is going to air, and that's kind of strange. Leslie, let's start with the biggest question of all. Do upfronts still mean anything?
1: I mean, for press uh, this year, I don't know how much they really meant. Um, You're right. NBC didn't unveil its schedule during its presentation. ABC also didn't unveil a schedule. Um, the fall schedule for CBS was an afterthought as part of Viacom CBS's presentation. Some of the big conglomerates didn't even bother to showcase trailers for their new shows. You know, this past week and the, the presentations were less about broadcast networks for most of them, and more about the power of their portfolio. You know, you know, when you start with NBC Universal, they really set the tone. You know, in previous years, they would, you know, divide their presentation into here's what we've got at NBC and they would trot out a network exec. And then here's cable brand number one, here's cable brand number two and so forth. And this year that didn't happen because, as we've mentioned it for the past year, you know, NBC Universal restructured. They now have an executive regime with Francis Berwick and Susan Rovner overseeing the entire content portfolio of NBC, Peacock and the six cable networks. And this year, their upfront presentation was. Not about which platforms, but it was divided by scripted and unscripted and sports and specials and so forth. And it was less about the power of of the network and more about the power of their entire portfolio. Disney had a very similar strategy except they put out their brands first and they trotted out exec after exec here's John Landgraf here's Craig Erwick talking about uh, ABC and Hulu and here's Tara Duncan talking about freeform and and the diversity and inclusion uh, uh, the Onyx Collective that she now oversees and here's the head of ESPN and here's everybody else and you know obviously there's no Disney plus because Disney plus doesn't have any ads so it had no place in the upfronts but it's it's basically like the networks were an afterthought you know, so it, it it's really you know Viacom CBS was the same way. You know, like I said, CBS. I remember you know the days of Les Moonves on stage going, "Let's take you through Monday. Here's we're going to take you through Tuesday, and here's this show and here's this trailer." No trailers on CBS. We scroll down at the end of the the virtual CBS presentation, and you know, there's a little note you know on the website. A little note on the website is like, "For more on our shows, you know, look, you know scroll down." So I scroll down, and I'm like, "What is this?" There's like footage of Halo. For Paramount Plus, which they didn't screen, like they didn't showcase that during the virtual, like holy shit, you know. And it's like, yes, of course, Paramount Plus, there's no ads, so why would they, you know, showcase that? But then why is that that out there? But why didn't they not release it, you know? And it's like, it, it's it's crazy. And I, I've never seen a year with this much change at the upfronts. But it's also honestly, it's not unexpected after the year that we just went through.
0: It's funny because. They're really, you know, the, the streaming wars didn't really just start last week. Um, nor did they start when the TV's top five podcast started. Um, but there was still several years where, like I would say five solid years where you could sense that the shift was taking place to both streamers and to cable and where the message of upfronts was no seriously networks, broadcast networks in particular, are still the number one place for, well, certainly for your advertising buck, but really just to work with advertisers. We want to be with you. We're still relevant. We're the biggest way to make the biggest splash with the biggest number of people. And that was even dramatically reduced this year. You know that was definitely the thing that Fox was putting out there. That was the thing that Fox was repeating. <laughs>
1: I mean, look, you want you want to talk about Fox for a second. You know, you've got Charlie Collier, the the perennial salesman, out there pitching Tubi, right? Like, well, <laughs> I mean, yes, it's an ad supported streaming service, but like. That's to me that that's the, your biggest example of of the shift that we've seen. He's he's out there and he's saying, you know, come to Fox. We're nimble. We're small. We're you know we don't have a studio. We, you know they have, you know they're rebuilding themselves from the ground up as an independent network, etc. We've got Tubi. Free is important, you know. And and he he came up with this term. I'm sure it's I don't know if he came up with it, but he used you know he goes we're, he pitched Fox and Tubi as as the alternative to ad buyers who were struggling with what he called Max Plus Syndrome, which yeah, that's a keeper term for me. But um, yeah, and, and you know, as we're talking about how little the broadcast networks have seemed to matter to, as part of these presentations, look no further than Warner Media's presentation. And the, and at the tail end of it, you've got the execs out there saying, or Jason Kilar out there, of course, you know, which is in a pre taped bit out there unveiling HBO Max's ad-supported offering for ten bucks a month, launching in June. You know, and normally this would be the week where, where ever, people are buzzing like, oh, this new show looks great. Or how, you know, like the Wonder Ears, everyone's talking about it. Like the trailer looked great and Queens looks fun. But the, the the buzziest trailer that came out this week, Dan, we talked about it at the top of the show, was for a, a show that's that for an unscripted reunion special that that's going to air on a streaming platform. And for a show that was that ended 17 years ago,
0: it, it's it all feels strange, or it feels strange for us because we're so accustomed to the old normal. And so Fox kept repeating over and over again, nothing is on paywall. We've got a commercial load. Seriously. We're nimble. We're nimble. Yeah, drink every time Charlie Collier said nimble. And by nimble, he just means (laughs) <laughs> we've got commercial we've got commercial breaks so and we're willing to put your commercials wherever you want them and we're willing to work with you however seriously please come give us your ad money we're we're we're, we're nimble yes S- such a, such an odd and amusing and l- l- let's put it frankly vaguely desperate because that's just what everyone is i'm not saying fox specifically vaguely desperate i'm saying all the broadcast networks there is a certain desperation. I would even say, you know, the, the highlight of the upfronts process is always when Jimmy Kimmel gets up and roasts ABC. And it's always a, a good-natured but harsh piece of ribbing. I, I would say this year in particular, and you can go see our colleague James Hibbard's summary of the jokes he was making, I would say there was nothing good-natured about his ribbing this year. Um, I think this year... Kimmel may have gone over the edge into simple into simple nihilism with his with his routine. It was like, okay, what are we all doing here? We're a floating dead whale corpse, and that's not necessarily the uh, the message that the broadcast networks have been trying to put out there for say fifty years. And he's also not wrong. Oh no, you know. <laughs> but, so. it's, but he still has all you know he would always do the good natured joking about ha 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 their shows are ridiculous our shows are ridiculous everything's ridiculous give us our money give us your money this year i'm not even sure there was any kind of justification for any of it other than this is a strange relic of a past industry that we're attempting to perpetuate out here yearly isn't it weird that we're still doing this i Honestly, I always find it kind of funny how he tiptoes along that line every year. This year, he was just way on the other side of the line. It was hilarious as a result. But if I'm an advertiser sitting in there, at some point at the beginning, I'm going ha ha ha, he's joking about our business. And then after about ten minutes, I'm like, oh dear lord, is it time for me to go back to law school? And that, you know, probably is not (laughs) is not a complete success.
1: Right, but at the same time, you know, the the thing that I think you know, it's worth, it's important to note right now is, yeah, you know, you can make fun of, you know, like, oh, does broadcast still matter, you know, in in 2021? And the answer is yes, because when you look at, at a show, as as several execs have told me in the last week, and some, I think, may have even said on stage, I don't know, it's all kind of a blur at this point, but all these broadcast shows are going to wind up on streaming platforms where they get are going to get a completely additional audience. You know, you've got Craig Erick out there talking about Grey's Anatomy. And that's a great example. That show is a number. It's tied. I think it's tied with this is us is the number one drama on broadcast, but then it, it airs the next day on Hulu where it gets a completely different audience of possible cord cut, you know, people who cut the cord and, it, and you're get you're basically doubling the audience. Right. And that's, you know, everything that's on broadcast is winds up on a streaming platform, whether it's the next day or, or, or a couple of months down the road. So e- eventually that line will blur and it won't matter. You know, we, we've, as we've seen for a long time, people don't necessarily know where the, some of these shows originate you know, like, every, you know, lots of people I see on, on social talking about um, Cruel Summer and like, oh, it's on Hulu. No, it's not. It's on Freeform. You know, like, it's that happens all the time. I remember being at TCA years ago and David Nevins telling reporters, I don't know if this was during a presentation or, or, or in a scrum afterwards, and he was saying how upset he was that most people thought Shameless, which was their number one drama on Showtime, was a Netflix original because that's where people watched it. That's what's happening. That's what will continue to happen, and that's why you're seeing all of these companies shift, saying we don't necessarily need to put CBS front and center. We're going to put our entire ecosystem front and center, and you can buy an ad on CBS, and it'll, you know, be across a lot of the cable networks. And NBC Universal is doing the exact same thing, and and you know, Disney's got an ad-supported version of Hulu, et cetera, and a you know, plus ABC and Freeform. Eventually, that that that's where everyone's going to go, and it's just a bigger question of. How soon until all of these presentations are focused on the one central ecosystem?
0: So let's get to a couple pieces of the actual news, the cancellations, renewals, transfers to Paramount Plus, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, give us a couple of the things that surprised you this week.
1: Well, just about the surprises, to me, the biggest one is Rebel. Um, and yes, I I do think Chris Avernoff is incredibly talented and as a showrunner and a writer, and while I haven't seen Rebel, I will say she is ABC's most valued producer running Grays and Station 19. Obviously, you know, rebuilding Grays to broadcast number one drama is a big deal. Um, that season had a hell of a year creatively. She got both Grays and Station 19 and Rebel up during a pandemic, and they canceled Rebel, which was her first original show that managed to get on the air after 13 attempts. And they canceled it after five episodes. This was like incredible. And they owned it. They owned the show and they, and they still gave it a quick hook because, it, you know, Craig Erwick says not enough people watched it on linear and, and they looked at the digital trends and it just wasn't trending in the right direction. Sources say uh, ABC signature is going to try and shop the show elsewhere. But that to me is, is it's stunning because you own the show. It's from your biggest producer. It's got, it's, Perfectly on brand for ABC, inspired by Aaron Brockovich, starring Katie Seagal. It's a great cast with Andy Garcia and John Corbett, and again from Krista. And it and that that's surprising. And you know, for life, the decision to cancel that at ABC. You know, you've got a, an incredibly timely show with a big producing producer like Fifty Cent attached to it. But that was a show that was originally championed by Carrie Burke, who's now at, at running twentieth. Uh, for Life is produced by ABC Signature. Yes, still part of the Disney fold, but I hear that that's being shopped and could wind up at Hulu, which would surprise me because Craig Erwick oversees both. So why would he cancel one thing on ABC and pick it up on the other thing that he also oversees? But those are the big, you know, to me, Rebel is the biggest surprise uh, in terms of the cancellations. In terms of pilot passes, I was s- shocked to see Ways and Means not make the cut uh, simply because Patrick Dempsey, you know, the interest in him has, has obviously changed a lot since his a uh, big surprise return to Grey's Anatomy this past season, uh, but it was a political drama. And I think we what we've seen in our landscape is people are not really wanting to live in that space right now. After the past couple of years that we've had, and you know what I'm I'm getting from a lot of studio chiefs as part of my annual survey this year is people are shifting to uplifting programming. You know they they don't want to watch stuff that that's too heavy. And that's honestly that's what you and I have been talking about in terms of my own personal viewing habits. So. And I don't think I'm alone. And everyone that I talk to is basically saying the same thing. You know, it's very hard to watch stuff that that's too stark of of a reminder. Um, Let's see what else. Um, I think the big, you know, move of Clarice to Paramount Plus is hilarious because you know you can go back and listen to our Jenny Lumet interview and she talked extensively about how much she and Alex Kurtzman wanted to make this show for streaming in the first place and how David Nevins pushed incredibly hard and and sold them and convinced them to make it for CBS and yeah they were right the first time so that was interesting um, and then in terms of scheduling Dick Wolf has nine shows on the fall schedule nine shows controlling three full nights of prime time across two different networks with three different law and order shows three different chicago shows and three different fbi shows and that is what we call a reliance on franchises and then you've got csi coming back in the fall on cbs with the flagship you know where it's reuniting with survivor which was which two shows that were originally paired more than a decade ago yeah, it, it's really surprising. So, let's see what else. All Rise getting the hook. A lot has been written about the behind-the-scenes turmoil there. I wasn't surprised to see that, but then uh, a show like um, Be Positive with a star that's also had some allegations against him that's or, also that's returning,
0: or CBS has been perfectly happy to renew Bull over and right. over and over again. So, you know, I have to, look, CBS, we we know what matters at CBS, and CBS has never pretended about what matters so quite simply if uh if all rise it had, had the ratings that apparently bull has it would still be back because right
1: but <laughs> apparently they they clean house at all rise and it's still one of the few shows um on broad on cbs specifically that has a black lead so oh no
0: i i understand why it would have been smart or optically beneficial for them to have kept it on but you know they decided that was not the thing that that mattered i'm still flummox that bull keeps coming back but cbs knows what the value of that is and they don't care what i think and that's totally fine they're doing just fine on their bottom line without caring what dan thinks
1: (laughs) yeah but you know in, in, in a larger sense, you you know, the total volume of new series pickups is at 25 right now. That is up from the pandemic anomaly of last year, but not quite at the pre-pandemic volume of 2019. We still have the CW to go. They're expected to announce their fall schedule and new series pickups next week. They're expanding to Saturday, so I'm curious if the volume will increase at the network because um, they've got a, a couple of pilots. I'm expecting Powerpuff Girls and Naomi to get the green light. They've already picked up the 4400, and then they've got a a, a few different uh, backdoor pilots that aired as, as planted episodes. So I'm curious how much they'll they'll continue to pick up, and then uh, we can get into more of what's still what what other decisions are still left to be determined um, in our next segment. But yeah, in terms of, you know, the other stuff, no no real surprises. Fox bringing back both 9 uh, the residents coming back, the Great North will got an early third season. The network also got an early jump on the 22-23 broadcast season and picked up a show called Accused from the powerhouse trio of Homeland creators Howard Gordon, Alex Gonza, and house creator David Shore, who's currently on The Good Doctor for ABC. CBS is returning both of its Chuck Lorre comedies and picked up a Pete Holmes bowling comedy and Sophia Bush medical drama called Good Sam, uh, ABC picked up The Wonder Years and Queens and Maggie and Abbott Elementary. And I gotta say, the trailers for uh, for Wonder Years and Queens and even Abbott look really great to me. Gone from ABC's lineup is American Housewife, Call Your Mother, and Mixed Dish. Uh, Blackish is officially returning for an eighth and final season, joining the Connors, the Goldbergs, the rookie rookie uh, comedy Home Economics, and A Million Little Things. And NBC, to no surprise, we talked about Dick Wolf having three uh, Law & Order shows Is bringing back organized crime. And, you know, the other shocker, I think, of the week is, and it started Monday, so it feels like less of it uh, a week later, but the network is holding back all comedy from its fall schedule for the first time in more than 50 years. But then you've got Brooklyn Nine-Nine coming back in August. So it's kind of that in-between lead-in after the, you know, ahead of the fall season or leading into
0: the fall season. So. Okay, take a deep breath now, and we're going to move on to our next topic, which you already just teased. And I would go so far as to say you probably gave the kids about a third of the topic, because for number three, we're going to number three. What's still to come after Upfront's week? So what is still up in the air? Leslie, again, take a deep breath because you are doing a lot of heavy lifting this week.
1: Well, don't worry, man, you're coming up next. You're you're anchored a great interview uh, coming up in our showrunner spotlight. But still to be determined, I just talked about the CW having decisions left to make. They still have Republic of Sarah yet to premiere. That's, I believe, in June. Fox's animated comedy, Housebroken, yet to premiere. But the fate of all of its current pilots have been decided. NBC is where it's got a lot of action. Uh, They have Bubble shows, Good Girls and Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist and Manifest and Rookie Debris all on the bubble. Sources say Good Girls could move to Netflix as an original, with Zoey's possibly landing on Peacock. Uh, The latter is a part of a renegotiation with co-producers Lionsgate, then you've got the pilot side. It's interesting. You know, we talked, I wrote a big feature about how the pandemic forced the broadcast networks to change in terms of its development model. And NBC, I think, is the, is the poster child for that and for the year round pilot development and ditching the idea of, of picking up 60 to 90 different pilots in, and producing them all in a three month window. So NBC has a mix of holdovers from 2020, as as well as a few recently ordered pilots, including comedies Crazy for You, the Demi Lovato comedy Hungry. It's Jim Jeffries comedy uh, that's been in the works for a while. The Night Court revival, uh, the rom-com Someone Out There, as well as dramas at that age, Dangerous Moms, Echo, Getaway, and a procedural from Julie Pleck, you know, NBC really hasn't made decisions about its midseason lineup, so you can expect some decisions on those four bubble shows, as well as some pilots in the months to come. Uh, I'm personally going to be interested to see how much of their their remaining pilot slate will be for. or even afterwards, because that's honestly what where I think we are as an industry. You know, the pandemic really effectively wiped out pilot season last year. So this season has been a mix of holdovers and newly ordered stuff in the past couple of months. And I'm curious if pilot seasons to come will continue to be a mix of things that we've seen developed for months or even years at this point. And yeah, I, I think it's a smart idea because I don't know, you know, and these networks have been talking for a long time, Dan, about is pilot season dead? You know, we, you know, I wrote in the story, you know, Kevin Riley was was right. And it's time that he gets credit for coming out in 2014 and saying on the TCA stage when he was still president of Fox and saying R.I.P. Pilot season. He was right. He was right. Fox just picked up two shows straight to series with Fantasy Island and The Accused, you know, doing year-round development makes sense you're you're not competing for for the same talent and and directors and production space and cast members all at the same time and trying to to make a product that that is going to be sold worldwide in 3 months that's insane but anyway i digress so Shifting over to ABC, they still have a couple of, of uh, late season pilot orders still in contention, including the Disney themed fairy tale drama Epic, the political drama Dark Horse, and the Kevin Costner produced National Parks Investigation, plus Latinx family drama Promised Land and 2020 Holdover Triage. Sources say all of those remain in contention for mid season or beyond. So, yeah. And then CBS still has True Lies, which was moved off cycle almost immediately after it, it uh, scored a pilot order uh, early a couple of months ago. So lots still to come. I expect the, the to- obviously the total volume of 25 will, will grow once we hear from CW. But yeah, it's it's going to start to be incredibly hard to do these big buy the numbers crunches because we sh- are, seem like we're finally in a year-round development model. So lots going on still so much stuff still happening but yeah it's it's this year has has been fascinating to see how these networks have had to evolve and how they will continue to do so in the years to come
0: and once again stay tuned for more details on all of that and or more up next is our showrunner spotlight segment number 4 our guest this week is Alan Yang, the Emmy-winning co-creator of Master of None, whose credits include NBC's The Office, Parks and Recreation, and The Good Place, as well as Amazon's Forever. The Netflix comedy, which has not aired since 2017, returns this weekend for its third season with Lena Wait's Denise, Front and Center. Thank you for joining us, Alan. Thanks for having me, guys. Good to talk to you. So it's been...
1: Four years. Is that right? Since season two ended and the show is back with a season that is starting with the premiere. Very different. Um, Take us through the discussions to bring it back for a third season and to refocus it around Lena Waite's character, Denise.
2: Yeah, absolutely. By the way, you saying four years just made me just think about life. <laughs> it's like four years. Wow, that's a that seems like a long time. Very standard in the world of television, right? You take that four year break. Uh, no, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's 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 funny. You know, people have asked kind of like, yeah, well, it was behind the decision, and quite honestly, it's something we had talked about for a surprisingly long time, you know, ever since season one, really, we did an episode season one called mornings, um, which was about Dev and, and Rachel and, and their relationship and about their mornings together as, as a couple. And we were already curious, like, what's Denise's mornings like? Like, what is, what would that character look like? And then of course, season two, we did the Thanksgiving episode, which, which really centered Denise. And, um, you know, it just, I think the watchword for our, for our show for, for master is really what's the most exciting idea what's the most challenging thing and 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 honestly what's something that scares us a little bit so i think taking a swing like this was like you know i we we talked about okay there's a version of this that's a love story that's an intimate you know sort of real deep sort of exploration of a relationship and yeah there's a version of it with 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 aziz's character and maybe it's dev and a woman and it's a straight couple but we kind of felt like This is more interesting. Like, you know, centering Denise and Alicia and and exploring this relationship felt like applying a lot of these classic film techniques that we love, but to a super, super modern 2021 couple. And so that was one of the guiding principles. And that was one of the things that really excited us.
1: So after season two ended, Aziz has said that he wasn't sure that, that Master would be back for another season because he had nothing else to say about being a young single guy living and eating around New York City. So a few months later, obviously, he was accused of sexual assault and immediately apologized. How much of the decision to pivot to Denise was based on Aziz not wanting to be in the spotlight of the new season?
2: I don't think that was really the the issue. I mean, it was really something like we creatively were, were really excited about. And, you know, we had some of these ideas pre pre pre-season two really so it was it was really us talking about these scripts and these ideas i mean man i was when we really started getting into the scripts i was working on a movie i did uh, called tiger tail and 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 so as he started working on these scripts and you know obviously then we brought lena into the process because you know it's it's her character being centered so you know, it really wasn't about him not wanting to be in it. In fact, we have other, you know, I, I don't think I'm even supposed to say this, but we have some other ideas and other scripts where Aziz is in it. And honestly, this season was shootable during COVID and some of the other scripts we had were not shootable. So we actually had some other scripts where Aziz was in them and we couldn't shoot them due to COVID. So it really wasn't that. It was it was more like this was really creatively more exciting and, and, and um, seemed like just as you said, a more interesting pivot to us.
0: But was there a conscious awareness of sort of where the discourse might have been otherwise? I mean, you guys are out in the world of the internet as much as anyone, you know, just sort of making sure that the third season could stand on its own in a different way.
2: I think it's important that the third season's able to stand on its own. By the way, Aziz is not in the internet, so he's barely out there at all. Uh, I think he uh, now doesn't. He refuses to like use a smartphone, so he like doesn't have email or anything. So he's he's gotten back to just like you know like call me on a on a landline or whatever. No, that's not <laughs> right, but 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 it literally like the, the dude does not use emails, which is uh, really really fun for me. But no, it, it it's it's funny. It's it's just like um, it, for us, it's like making the thing and just making sure that the thing is something we're proud of and 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 that's really all you can do i mean it, i'm happy to do promotions and press and stuff like this but ultimately like to us it's like let's work really hard on 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 making this thing as as good as we can make it and and hopefully people respond to it
0: But along those lines, there are multiple dev appearances in the season. What were the conversations like about how much dev you wanted to have to make this feel like Masters of None versus at what point does it cease to be Denise's story since that's what you wanted to tell?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I think we centered Denise. So there's, you know, interesting aspects of these dev scenes where it's really about what happens when you become successful and what happens to your life. And one of those aspects is what happens to your relationship. Another is what happens to your family. And another is what happens to your friendships and the friendships you made maybe before you became successful. And so that was something that was on our minds the whole time. And um, there were definitely versions of the script where we're like, maybe there's no dev. And it's like, whoa, wouldn't it be cool if he's not in the season at all? Like I actually was pushing for that for a while, just creatively. It's like, it is really bold. And then we're like, you know, it's probably somewhat of an olive branch to extend to the audience to like have the main character of your show appear a couple times (laughs) so so as, as challenging as the season is in some ways and as as much as we want to sort of challenge people's preconceptions of what another season of a television show could be um we were like yeah i think it's it's fun to see them together and i think those scenes are really compelling you know especially there's there's one later on in the season that is like man this is like it's interesting to see this guy, who, as you guys mentioned, you know, was having a great run of it and was going around New York and eating tacos and having fun, and and now it's like, you know, that's it, that's not everyone's experience, and 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 so um, it, I, I thought it was touching to see those two act together again.
0: But along those lines, and you just mentioned it, how conscious are you of audience expectations for what? Master of None means as a title and sort of giving audiences some of that just so that they aren't running off crying, going, this wasn't Masters of None at all.
2: <laughs> I think ultimately we're trying to get the word out that at least it's Denise's season so they understand that. And that's through the poster and through the trailer. Um, but we're hoping people are just along for the ride. You know, it, it's it's sort of like... it television is changing so much it, over the course of the last five, like, as you guys said, you know, we put out the show, what first season was five, six years ago. And at the time when we sold the show to Netflix, they had two shows. They had orange is the new black and House of the cards. And they had also a show called Lilyhammer, which I think they had imported, but that was it. Like when we went to pitch the show to Ted Serrano's, it was us and him in like a conference room. And like, things have changed a lot, you know, things have changed a lot. And I think in the wake of that, I like the idea that uh, you know a show can evolve and change over time, and I—I I, I don't know, maybe this is just our taste, but I like when creators and filmmakers challenge us and. Maybe don't do the same thing every time, and you know if you look at look at look at the greatest filmmakers, right? And not to compare us to them in any str- by any stretch of the imagination, but look at the different genres the Coen Brothers do, right? The Coen Brothers made Raising Arizona, they made the big they made Big Lebowski, then they made No Country for Old Men, right? It's like it's like you can do it, you know? It's like isn't it fun to be able to do that, right? Isn't it fun for Scorsese to make you know Taxi Driver and After Hours, like you know that's kind of like. Look, that is those are high aspirations, but it's also like you know what a fun thing, and we we understand that this sort of very lucky privileged position we're we're in to be able to do this, but to be able to do a season and do a slightly different tone, and it was funny because again we had the exact same conversation you guys are bringing up right now, which is like oh man, it's like it's not like Devin Arnold eating tacos, like you know going to Italy and like eating pasta or whatever. But we really like it and ultimately the taste you know our taste and, and sort of our creative instincts are all we have. you know we can only trust what we uh, what our own taste is and wh- where our own work leads us. And so we kind of felt like you know let's pursue what we feel most strongly about and hopefully the audience will follow. And then we started showing it to people and and we started showing people cuts we had and the reaction we got from people we really trust, whose taste we really trust, was was really positive, and it, and more than that, you know, we were saying like, oh, is it how weird is it that it's a, it's more dramatic, and you know, it's shot on film, and the camera never moves, and there's almost no close-ups, and, all, and it's just people kind of performing, you know, in in these wider shots, um, and and the reaction we got was like, yeah, of course, it's a little bit more dramatic, but there's there's fun moments and there's funny moments and you know, ideally you're portraying some representation of life, which has ups and downs, right? Which has positive moments and has sadder moments and has challenges and has triumphs, right? So, um, you know, that's all a very long-winded way of saying we feel lucky to be able to do this and, and we're grateful to, to Netflix Universal for, for reading these scripts and saying, yes, this is something we're interested in doing and taking that leap and doing something that we feel like is, is probably the most mature thing we've ever made and, and, and we're very proud of.
1: A uh, quick follow up on that one, too. You know, you mentioned Netflix and Universal, obviously the producers on that in the studio. But did you have to repitch the season? Like, was it basically like, hey, we have season three, here's what it is. And they're just like, great. When do you want to premiere it? When can you deliver? Or was it like, hey, we're kind of throwing out our playbook, doing something different? Like, w- what was their, the reaction when you came to them with this?
2: Uh, you might be surprised. They, we, we, Again, we were like, we had to prep them. We got to call them and talk to them about about what we're doing and send them the scripts. But quite frankly, we wrote all the scripts kind of before any of this happened. Like we, before we even really pitched it, we kind of just wrote them, right? That, that's kind of how we operate. We just kind of, that's how we did season one and two is like, you know, a lot of it was just us writing stuff and, and, and getting to shoot them. And so for this season, we kind of just worked on the scripts and wrote them. And then we called our partners over there. And, and, and again, we were, you know, by the way, every other showrunner in the world is hating us right now, but because we were saying, yeah, we, they just let us do it. But, but we were, you know, they were pretty cool about it and we called them and they've always, it's always just been a good sort of, partnership over there with with ted and now bella and and andy wheel who's been working on the show since season one you know we just have a working understanding with them and and they're open-minded and and we talked to andy 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 has seen every classic film in the world right He's, he's seen every play every you know he has great taste in our opinion and he knew you know when we talked about whatever highfalutin references like Ingmar Bergman or Chantal Ackerman or Yasujiro Ozu or anything he was like oh i get it like i get it and like that's a real that's really lucky <laughs> you know shout out to Andy cuz cuz that is a that is a thing where like a lot of you know i think a lot of venues a lot of networks might have been like what are you guys doing but he kind of saw the vision and we sent them the scripts and we did an epic you know 4 hour long table read over zoom and it played really well and i think you know when we cast Naomi it's something else Got unlocked. That was really magical, and, and, and the chemistry and the interplay between the two of them was something really special. So, you know, it, was it probably a curveball they didn't expect? Yes, but um, I, again, I we I can only express gratitude to them for allowing us to make this. And by the way, make this under the sort of restrictions of COVID in, in the UK, you know, so we shot this in the UK and, and, and uh, of course presented it's all of its own difficulties doing, doing COVID shooting. Um, But again, it's, it's a minor miracle that, that I think that the the cast and crew pulled it off.
1: Yeah. I want to come back to the COVID uh, and the logistics of it all in a minute, but before we get to that, so you've talked about the, the, about Netflix and Universal's reaction. Now I'm curious, you know, In this landscape, as we talk about how much it's changed, especially since season two debuted, it's really challenging for shows to retain viewers when they're off the air for so long. A four year gap. I mean, I don't even think Game of Thrones did that. But how much do you guys hope the new season appeals to viewers who haven't seen the show before while also trying to kind of update fans on the first two seasons with what's happened to these two characters and where they are now?
2: That's actually a huge discussion we've had. And, and look, our, our brightest scenario, our best case scenario, by the way, I love the Game of Thrones thing. It's like, man, they didn't do it to you. Now you're scaring me, Leslie. Don't do that to me. <laughs> we don't have Game of Thrones numbers to fall back on, I don't think. I, like, I have to talk to Netflix, but I'm pretty sure we didn't have uh, 50 million people watching. Uh, but no, it, it's, you know, it's definitely a conversation we had. And, and look, this is our hope. This, this is the best case scenario is fans who enjoyed the show in the past will check it out. All right. We'll check it out based on the strength of the, the, the show and the, the brand name of the show. And by the way, maybe some of them have gotten a little bit older and matured. And by the way, the climate of the country and the world is a little different from how it was four years ago in a lot of ways. So maybe in some ways this season suits the climate a little better and is a little bit more sober and a little bit you know, more aware of what's going on. And, and, and then secondarily to that, it, it's exactly like you said. I think we've talked specifically with Netflix about you know, why not try feeding the show to people who are watching some more dramatic stuff and people who've been watching, you know, uh, romantic stuff and, and and things that are a little bit more grounded and a little bit less comedic. Um, you know, fans of Lena and fans of Naomi and fans of, you know, people who may not have checked out the first two seasons very well might enjoy the season. So, so I think that's the hope, right? And you never know, I, you know, obviously... I think we have some other fun ideas we'd have for future seasons, so who know who knows what will happen, but um, yeah, I think the goal is, look, hopefully people like it, hopefully there's good word of mouth, and, and it's like, yeah, check this out, it's different from the earlier seasons, but um, there's something really compelling, and there's something that I haven't seen before, you know, that's another thing we talked about a lot, which is between seasons one and two like let's try to challenge people and 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 you know like with season one we try to challenge them with the parents episode and try to show them something they hadn't seen before with season two you know whether it's thanksgiving or new york i love you or some of those episodes it's like let's try to do things we hadn't seen as much on tv and by the way in the ensuing four years as you mentioned there's been an explosion of radical experimental television some of it quite excellent and so we kind of feel like, okay, we got to keep setting the bar higher and, and give them something else that they haven't seen before. And hopefully we, we've, we've come close.
0: I, I want to go back to the Highfalutin references uh, because <laughs> yes, let's That's
1: that right, man after Dan, my own tracks. heart,
0: Daniel. Man after Be, my own heart. <laughs> because let me say, there's nothing that's going to get people to watch like saying it's very, very Bergman inspired. Um, <laughs> get those so, numbers
2: right. <laughs> the Game of Thrones guys are shaking in their boots. They're like, our ratings <laughs> records are in jeopardy. <laughs>
0: and, and I feel like there's no question that that. The people who know are going to know the Bergman references. And I feel like there are a lot of other things that are sort of, you know, in the, in the background things, whether it's two for the road or something like that. What else do you want to point to as the texts that people might want to be aware of if they're going to be completely on the vibe of this season?
2: Yeah. I mean, like, I I don't want to spoil them all. Um, And first of all, I also want to remind listeners that at its core, this is a love story. It's not, it's, look, I assure you, at least you can, tried to take my word for it. You know, I showed it to my girlfriend who has no interest in those films, personally. She's a big uh, Julie Roberts, you know, rom-com fan, which is totally awesome. Those movies are totally awesome. But she was like, no, I I was like, were you bored? She was like, no, I just got, immediately got into just this relationship. And look, she's biased, but she was like, I would tell you if it were too slow or whatever, but she was like, I just immediately cared about Denise and Alicia. And that is ultimately, all we want to do as people making a show, people making a movie, whatever, it's like, do you care about the characters? Do you care about their story? Do you care about their relationship? Do you care? Do you believe these people are real? Do you believe they're in love? Do you believe they're on the rocks? Like all of these things, that was what was important to us, regardless of how you're shooting the movie, where the camera is, what film stock you're using, any of that's, <laughs> all that stuff's cool, fun, right? That's all, those are all tools, right? Those are all tools. What you really want is like, man, are you capturing these actors' charisma? Do you buy these characters and and are you are you invested in the story and to us like we again we felt like it was proof of concept when we started watching those early cuts we started watching you know after a couple weeks two three weeks or so we 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 watched just some of the assemblies of the scenes we had shot just to make sure that we weren't insane so we we, we 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 were watching it and 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 the choices we were making making sure that that they were not too off-putting or too slow or whatever and we really felt like wow we, we care about these characters and 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 we're invested so you know a, a couple of the touch points you know obviously i mentioned bergman and scenes from a marriage i mean that's, that's 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 pretty obvious but um another big one was the uh, was jean dillman which is a, a kind of a seminal uh a work by chantal ackerman which is the ultimate in not moving the camera, and and it, it wasn't like we, like we it wasn't like we it, we weren't working outside in if that makes sense we weren't saying like we we want to do this as like a showy thing like this is this is an example of our long one take scenes it wasn't that it was more like we want to pe- put people in this cabin. We want to make them feel like they are living this relationship with these characters. They are a fly on the wall and you want to forget that you're watching a show. We want you to forget that you're watching filmed entertainment. We want you to feel like I am just watching this couple in love. I'm watching them fight. I'm watching them fall in and out of love. I'm really feeling this and I'm trying to, you know, honestly, we're trying to get rid of some of the artifice, right? One of the things we talked about was it's almost an arms race, how cutty and fast cutting, you know, everything is these days, of course, action movies, but everything you watch a sitcom, you watch, I can barely keep up with what it's too fast. Like I, I can't keep Maybe, maybe I'm getting old, but it's like, it's almost so fast when you watch, you know, a lot of modern productions, it's like, there's an edit every second, right? There's an edit every second. And and we we're like what if we didn't play that game what if we didn't take all like literally you sometimes go into editing and take air out of scenes you take air out you take air out you take air out you're scared the audience is going to get bored you you're scared they're not going to so you just keep taking air out it's faster 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 and suddenly it's just a torrent of words coming from a bunch of different characters for us it's like what if we go the other way and just 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 Hey, they're talking in the scene like people talk. Like they're, you're just watching two people talk. Like how revolutionary is that? And you, there's no way to pull the air out. And the, by the way, there's this is another like tightrope walk that the actors managed to do. Which you know, my girlfriend pointed out. She's she's an actress, and she was like there's nowhere to hide you know it's just it's just takes of people talking and it's not you know this th- this is the scene this is the performance and there's no editing there's no there's no there's no sort of hiding or hoping you get the best takes you're stitching together 10 takes in a scene um you're just watching the performances and and, and again i i was i was pleasantly surprised at, at how at how brilliant uh, naomi and lena were
0: and and yet you're still playing to a certain small part of the demographic audience that's going to watch and go ooh it's in 43 yes, you know so,
2: that, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and by the way the title sequences and all that stuff you know look it's 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 those are the you know we're you know paying homage to some stuff that we love and and that's part of you mean look at the pillow shots right i to me like this is the ultimate nerdy director thing to say but it's like i love the some of the b-roll stuff we shot like i love you know like going out and putting the camera in these 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 locations you know very picturesque places and the rhythm of them and something as simple as a shot of a coat being hung up or a shot of a bird in a tree or, or Naomi lying on her back in the crook of a, of a of a dead tree. Like, you know, those things are, you know, they give something life. They give a piece life when you, when you add those in, you know?
0: Do the actors freak out, though, when you tell them there won't be close-ups? I think they kind of loved
2: it. I think it was like, it was weird to begin with where they're like, oh, we're done, we're done, we're done. But here's what you really do, I think, the first thing you do is everything counts, right? Everything, every take counts. You might, the first take might be it. You know, it might be, as like, hey, we did it. Like we did it. Then you get to the rhythm of it. And, and obviously all these things are rehearsed. And I think Aziz did a great job of rehearsing with the actors and using those rehearsals ahead of time to put those sort of ad-libs, improvisations and in-character moments into the script. So on the day we had already rehearsed, and then of course we rehearsed further on the day, on set, and we refined further. Um, and then on top of that, the the other bonus is, and, and again, this was an incredible boon during COVID. It's fast. It's incredible. We didn't shoot coverage. I mean, there's there are scenes. You know, we've all been there where it's like you're shooting a scene and it takes two days to shoot, or it takes. You know, it, it just you're you're shooting you're shooting close ups, mediums, wides. You know, you got to get two sizes, multiple. You know, you're, you're 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 blasting three cameras at something. You're you're shooting. You know, steady cam. All that stuff obviously takes time. So here here with this kind of style of shooting, it's performance. It's performance. And by the way. Makes you think harder about your production design, your wardrobe, your hair and makeup, and your blocking. Your staging and your blocking becomes your movement. You're not you're not moving the camera, so you better have that staging correct. You better have the blocking correct. It better feel natural, but it better have enough interest in the scene. So I think it honed a lot of uh, of Aziza's skills as a director and, and 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 all of our skills, sort of producing the show and writing the show and 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 getting that stuff on point to make sure that, you know, it became a strength as opposed to a crutch or a weakness.
1: So now you mentioned uh, a minute ago about the things that you were able to do during COVID and the things that, that the pandemic obviously derailed talking about all the different creative ways that the show is shot and, and how different that is from what you've done before, how much of that was a result of what you were able to do and what, what your limitations were with shooting during the pandemic?
2: It was, in some ways, a happy coincidence. And and by that, I mean, you know, first of all, just doing this season, again, these scripts were written a while ago, but they happened to occur, you know, so we were going to shoot it in spring of last year. So in March of last year, I flew to London and I was in the UK and we were scouting, you know, tech scouting, trying to find locations, all that stuff. March 11th, uh, Tom Hanks gets COVID, Rudy Gobert gets COVID, the NBA shut down, you know, Donald Trump shuts down travel. So, March 12th, I fly back to LA, right? So I fly back to LA and the show shut down. We talk, you know, later in the year about starting production back up and and doing what's safe and what's reasonable to do. And quite frankly, it it was kind of a, a miracle covid show because it was like look this is mostly two people in a house talking so that that alone there's no crowd scenes you know there's it you know very few locations so that alone made it a covid friendly show and and on top of that it happened to be a story about queer black love in a time when that was more relevant than it could ever have been in, in our opinion. So we kind of had the show. It's like, this seems to make a lot of sense. We should try to shoot this in the fall in the winter. Um, and then on top of that, we had always intended to shoot it this way. As we said, we had, we had watched these films and we had been inspired by the ability to make a moving story possible without moving the camera, you know? So it, it, it there's something about, um, we had already planned to do that. And then of course, with the difficulties of COVID and, and, Every showrunner and director is rubbing their temples hearing this, but it's like, of course, you have contact tracing, you have testing every day, and you have all you have potential shutdowns when people not even testing positive but false positives or contacts or anything like that. A driver, you know, tests positive once and then you see if it's real. So, all that stuff obviously causes delays, but because we had already intended to shoot this way, and as I said, it's incredibly speedy, I don't want to misquote, but it's we were somehow able to shave days and days and days off the expected length of the production so we were able to finish you know in a reasonable amount of time and and despite the fact that covid makes all the days shorter and and really puts a crimp in a lot of your plans we were able to execute this season partly because of the shooting style which by the way was not demanded by covid but was something we had planned on beforehand so that was really fortunate in a lot of ways
1: and you did say you had had some scripts for the season that you wanted to do that COVID made impossible. Can you talk a little bit about what we what you didn't get to do and what that means for a potential fourth season?
2: Exactly. I don't want to spoil that because God knows if it'll ever get made or, you know, we're we're always talking with our friends over at Netflix and Universal to see what what's next. But, you know, whether it's a different show entirely or but but yes, there were some other scripts and, and ideas that were not so COVID friendly as two people in a beautiful cabin. So, um, but they were really, yeah, we were really proud of those as well. So, um, you know, uh, uh, we're incredibly excited about this season and for people to watch it. But yeah, there there was other stuff in the hopper that was rendered really impossible to shoot.
1: Um, I do want to go back to focusing the season on two black and queer characters. You know, it, it, You know, season three to me feels almost... Like a different show. And I say that we've talked in the past for seasons one and two, you know how much I loved uh, those seasons. But this is obviously, it's an intimate portrait of a same-sex relationship. And Lena co-wrote the season alongside Aziz. how, How did the creative process compare to the first two seasons? And what did Lena really bring from her own experience in her relationships to the show?
2: Yeah, I mean, as you might imagine, for a much more intimate show, a much more intimate season, it was a more intimate writing process. And by that, I mean, there wasn't really a writer's room, right? So early on, it was Aziz, you know, calling me on the phone and us having phone calls and just, you know, talking about potential ideas, talking about the season um, and then moving on to research. So, you know, a lot of research was done in terms of interviewing people and, and sort of reading books about fertility, which is something that happens later in the season. Um, So that kind of research. But of course, we brought in Lena very early, because she was centered in this in this season. And as far as her personal experiences, I think, you know, we tried to hew away from capturing, you know, exactly what happened to her in her personal life, we felt like, you know, we didn't want to do that exactly. But certainly her perspectives and her emotional experiences and sort of Um, You know, her specific experience as someone who's been in queer relationships, you know, I think we definitely used... Details that only she would know, and a straight Asian guy and a straight Indian guy are not gonna know. <laughs> so, I think it was like, we we gotta have her help write these episodes, you know. And obviously, she's an incredibly talented writer in her own right. So, you know, she was brought in really early in the process, and, 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 you know, they kind of looked at the scripts together and, 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 uh, um, you know, wrote them. And, and, and I think, you know, that experience was invaluable, but we never saw it as like a one to one with any of her relationships or anything like that. It was more like, wow i mean we need this perspective and on top of that you know when naomi was cast it was a lot of like well we'd like to get your input on these characters as well and 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 what makes the most sense for you because you know we always try to tailor the characters to the actors and so seasons 1 and 2 you know we obviously wrote denise towards lena and we wrote arnold towards eric and and it was it was i mean that's a no brainer for us especially coming from comedy but even in a dramatic sense, I mean, you look at some of the greatest stuff, uh, you know, ever made in terms of, oh, this is a romantic drama or whatever. It's like, I mean, not to cite Bergman again, of course, he did a lot of research in that sense. But you know, you look at someone like Richard Linklater or something, right? You know, he's talking to Ethan Hawke and talking to Julie Delpy, and that's part of the reason why those, you know, the Before trilogy is so, is so good. Is like, I think he's using some of the essence of these performers, and I think you'd be kind of a fool not to. So, um, you know, all of that was kind of part and parcel. But the the short answer of, of that is that it's a lot of fun calls it's a lot of phone calls between me and aziz me and lena and lena and aziz and and just all of us chatting and and that's you know that was our writers room you know we're talking about like zoom writers rooms now it's like you know a lot of it was just like calls and like you know aziz was in london for some of it and i was in in l.a and lena was in l.a and in atlanta or wherever you know it was just like let's just do these phone calls and see see what comes out of them and what's most interesting and you know that gets put right into the show right conversations we're having and and what of our opinions about honestly, life and romantic relationships and career and all that stuff, it all kind of works its way in just like it did in the past seasons.
0: The the before movies have the two characters that are consistent throughout, but they're also all very different tonal pieces. And, And I feel like the first two seasons were maybe more a romantic comedy with a bittersweet vein. This feels more bittersweet with a romantic comedy vein was that something you knew it was going to be when you started off or did the bittersweetness sort of just come as you were progressing?
2: I love that take, Daniel. I was like, can we use that for the poster? <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's, a, it's an elegant reversal, but um, yeah, no, I think that's a good way of putting it. That's a good way of putting it. And I think, yeah, I think it, it's kind of some of the stuff I was alluding to earlier, which is like there is a little bit more somberness to this season and it's something like, you know, it it felt a little bit like that show, you know, the first two seasons were a different era of not just the country, but the world, you know, it's like one of the jokes we kind of have is like, man, you watch that show. It's like, man, that's a really, that's a real like Obama era show. That's like a super, it's such an Obama era, you know, it's optimistic. I mean, who knows if like, you know, all that's justified, but it was, you know, optimistic and sort of like happy go lucky and carefree and you know obviously there were issues at the time but the, but you know it was in terms of society but but that's how it felt i mean it's such an obama era show that like obama himself watched it and told us he liked it so like that's that's that, that's the kind of like that's how that's how in that vein it was but you know a lot of a lot of shit has happened since then and 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 um you know it just feels like it's it the tone of the show kind of suits where we are now and and you know look there's always room for escapism and there's always room for sort of just straight up fun shows but this season is is not that i think there's fun elements and and like you said i think there's always a vein of like optimism and sort of warmth that seeps into it into our our shows and and um i think both of us as and i both are are kind of ultimately pretty optimistic people um but it it, it certainly there's there's moments of human connection in that i think are really you know particularly the end of a couple of the episodes that are really triumphant and and really sort of cathartic. And, and, And that was really important to us as well.
0: So, if the first two seasons were Obama era, and this is a sort of coming out of the last fifteen months, was there simply no Trump era version of the show? And, <laughs> and what is and what and what does that mean? <laughs> oh
2: man, man, maybe that dude wasn't good for our creative process. <laughs> no, it
0: was, no I,
2: I, y'all never forget, man. Like this is uh, this is real, man, because it's exactly four years ago, right? So the day Trump got elected man, I'm, I'm so glad to have not talked about Trump for so It's crazy. I really haven't thought about him for a while, but but, but the day Trump got elected, so we went out, it was crazy, right? We, so we went out drinking and then the next day we were shooting Master Nunn. and it happened to be an episode I was directing. And of course, it's like, of course, it's like a seven or eight a.m. call or whatever early in the morning. And this episode called Religion and and, and I, I'm not even joking. We were all kind of it seemed like a catastrophic moment in American history, which it kind of was. And and people were kind of bummed out on set. And, um, you know, one of the first scenes up was a scene that didn't up m- even making the episode, but it was a flashback to a, a younger version of Dev post 9-11. And he was like walking across the street and there's a guy in a car who leans out the window and says, hurry up, terrorist, to Dev. Like it was like a moment of racism, like which, which again, we, we depicted in the show occasionally. And this is the morning after Trump's elected, and I, I'm not joking. This actor's doing, you know, hurry up, terrorists. Already very fraught. It's it's very difficult, and he's not doing it. But he's not doing it angrily enough. So I'm like, can you do it more racist? I was like, can you do it angry? Like that was like that was my job. The 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 morning after Trump got elected, and it was like. This is this is this is just too much man. So maybe maybe in subconsciously we we put a pin in the show cuz let's say it was like man this is this is not a good time but yeah it was it was uh yeah we we just kind of skipped that over. We skipped over that that regime.
1: Yeah, well looking forward now obviously in the the Biden regime and you have this new season obviously with the subtitle but I wonder, you know, as you have ideas that that didn't make it in and as the country is starting to open back up with vaccines etc. You know, do you know what a next season looks like? Will you continue continue with the subtitle? Will, will there ever be a return to what the tone and and the way it was shot in seasons one and two, et cetera?
2: Yeah, I, I just wouldn't rule anything out. You know, I just wouldn't rule anything out. I think you know it's kind of what I said earlier, which is like all we have is our instincts and 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 what we're most excited about you know i think that's what's fun about being creative right is like you wake up one morning and it's like wait we should do this kind of album right that's the fun can you like can you imagine how fun that is if you're like in radiohead or whatever or, like if you're if you're kanye or the beatles or whatever it's like man some of these albums are way different right that's that's the fun of it right that's the fun of it. it's like can i can i destroy people's expectations and and like you know just do something completely different and do it well like that's the hope right so that's the hope so you know look it's it's i think the show scratches a certain itch for us which is to be challenging and it's sort of you know be ambitious and 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 so i think i don't think we'll ever do a season that's not ambitious in some way and and that has a lot of different definitions um but i would never rule it out i think you know a joke we, we used to make a long time ago seasons one and two is like it it would be you know it'd be really interesting to see the show that 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 Alan Aziz make when we're sixty five right that like well, then we'll have different stuff to say <laughs> like I don't know if it'll be interesting but it'll certainly be different and it'll be like a, you know a, a totally different thing but I also I, I also do you know again feel lucky that we're able to do a season with a subtitle, right? That's a little different. That centers a different character and has a slightly different tone and um so so that is that 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 I love and that that I think is is really cool and is like, "Oh wow, it's a different look and 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 hopefully, you know, people people get on board."
1: Yeah, and and just because I have to ask, you know, will you submit this as a comedy or a drama series for awards consideration? Uh, I
2: I bel- I don't know if this is a spoiler, but but yeah, we I th- I believe we're submitting it as a comedy. Yeah, so Award spoiler.
1: <laughs> I, don't know, I,
2: don't, I don't know if people care about that, but yeah, sure.
1: I think uh, there are people in our industry that care deeply yeah, about that. Yeah, that's true. That are true. paid to care about I got to remember who I'm talking to. <laughs> this is not a
2: general population <laughs> podcast. This is people in the know who care. So yes, for The Hollywood Reporter, we're submitting this comedy. Please vote for Master of None. Well, I mean, my understanding—my understanding
0: understanding is that it's a totally different level of turris to have to change categories. So once you guys are already a comedy, it's easier to stay a comedy than to suddenly become a drama, right? I think so. I think so. I think there's comedic elements in the show. I mean, I think it's like, look, it's
2: probably a lot funnier than most of the drama. So let's put it in the comedy category. So, so yeah. Um, And and by the way, like, you know, while we're on the topic, it's like we really hope you know, Naomi and Lena get recognized because we really feel like they do tremendous, tremendous work. So I think, I think Lena's in the lead actress category and Naomi's in the supporting actress. So yeah, all comedy across the board and uh, yeah.
0: And, and yet the episode I want to at least touch on is the one where Naomi is the front and center part of the episode, which is the fourth episode, which is the episode that you alluded to earlier with the fertility drama in it. When did that episode become something that you were kind of building the season toward and around? Very early
2: on, very early on. And it was kind of, you know, we were pitching ideas for what, you know, what were the sort of events that would separate them and then what would they possibly do on their own, these characters. And then I think, you know, having Naomi in the fold, you know, sort of highlighted that episode a little more. And then we just kind of started building, building, building. And again, I think as these, did a lot of research and talked to a lot of people. And what we realized when we first started broaching this topic was how, how vastly widespread this topic is and how it hasn't been covered very much in fictional works. And it is, it is, it is, it is is everywhere, you know, and maybe, maybe that's the age I'm at now, but I talk about it with my friends and um, so many people in my life uh, are, are, are going through this kind of process and whether you're single or whether you're in a couple, whether you're just dating or whether you're in a, a queer relationship or, you know, w- whatever your, your personal sort of characteristics are like the fertility, the fertility situation is, is just really, really, really common. And so, you know, f- using that as a jumping off point and then talking to people, you know, there are people on our crew um, who experienced some some version of this and we talked to them and um, it, using some of these sort of personal experiences and, and sort of story turns here and there, like – you know, we felt like gave the episode something of a I don't know, there's just something really emotional about it. And that's the best way I can put it where you feel like you're put through the ringer and I had multiple people of all kinds, of all stripes, you know, directors and actors and people who not who are not in the industry just email me separately saying boy, at the end of episode four, I collapse in a puddle of tears, right? It was like, it's just it was just because it's just such a process and Naomi delivers such a tour de force performance and the writing direction, all of it. But it's just like, you feel like you're in that process. You feel like you're just with her on this journey. And by the end, I won't reveal what happens, but it's just like, you are ready to you're ready to, to have an emotional sort of cathartic experience. And, and again, that's a testament to, to, to you know, all the, all the folks who worked on it, but yeah.
0: And you mentioned the UK and you mentioned the need to scout. First of all, why did you shoot in the UK? And then tell us about the casting of the house, because obviously the farmhouse is basically the third character this season. It's
2: it's beautiful. And I'll let you in. A, well, first of all, it's because Aziz is living in London. So we shot in London. So that was not like, but by the way, but by the way, I mean, Beautiful countryside there that ended up being incredibly, you know, again, like you said, another character in the show, like the farmhouse that we shot at, you know. I will let people in on a little secret Uh, for those of you with eagle eyes. I I don't think anyone's been able to tell this yet because everyone thinks it's a real house because it's so well done, but that's, that's Amy Williams, our production designer. That's a stage for, for the vast majority of it. And it's, I almost hesitate to even say that because it's so well done and it looks so perfect, Um, but it is another character. I mean, and, and there's, as we mentioned before, these Ozu pillow shots of just the house. I mean, we have so many shots of just the house, the empty rooms, what that connotes and, 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 you know, just a shot of the sink or a shot of the fireplace or a shot of the teddy bear room or any of those, any of those things, you know, um, but it, but that is work from Amy Williams who has worked on every season of this show and every movie or show I've ever worked on as she's worked on. And so she's brilliant. But, um, and then, and then, yeah, that the farm itself, there was something also very interesting to us about Seeing these two characters, these two specific women in this context, you just for whatever reason, we don't see it that much. This couple um, talking about American Girl dolls being black or not. And like, you know, that that, and then seeing it against this beautiful sort of idyllic green, these green fields and rolling hills and chickens and horses and sheep and yeah, there was something magical about that, and then you add the Jesse Norman music, the the opera, and all you know. To me, all of those layers, you know, becoming this final product, like it, it was, it was something very specific and something we hadn't seen before, and, and so that was that was uh, that was a big part of it for us.
1: Starting to wrap up here, you know, I want to talk about some of the other stuff that you've got going on. Um, you're reteaming with Maya Rudolph, whom you worked with on Forever, and Matt Hubbard for a comedy at Apple, where you already have. Uh, serves as an exec producer on Little America. Talk a little bit about uh, what we can expect from the the Maya Rudolph comedy and and what uh, you just cast MJ Rodriguez in that. Who's one of my favorites from Pose.
2: Yeah, how exciting, man! Maya and MJ together. This is incredible. I'm just I'm it's just really casting, excited. Right, yeah. it's, it's it's pretty pretty great duo already to to set the show up around. But um, yeah, so so speaking of all the sort of tonal shifts and and the tonal shifts of the country. This one's going to be fun. It's fun and funny. It's a comedy and it's like this is one you could turn on and just be like I I'm enjoying myself and 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 it's just, you know, straight up comedy. And and uh, you know, hopefully not in a sort of not in an insipid or unthoughtful way but 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 a comedy that that again is 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 just fun to watch straight up fun to watch and talk about and and um you know there's an element to it also that that has a relevance because in 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 the show maya plays a woman who Gets divorced from her husband and inherits uh, eighty-seven billion dollars. Definitely not very topical, right? But, <laughs> it, but uh, so so there is an element of certainly uh, class inequality in the show that that we are addressing. But um, you know, besides that, it is one of the sort of warm ensemble comedy shows that 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 I've worked on in the past and that Matt's worked on in the past. You know, he worked on Thirty Rock, I worked on Parks and Rec, and so that's in our DNA. It's in our bones, and so this one's this one's kind of in that in that vein.
0: And there's no chance that when we come back to this in two years that it's going to turn out to be a darker or more bittersweet comedy than you <laughs> no than you promises. think it is right now. <laughs> no promises. MJ
2: only. MJ only in a dark. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's gonna it's gonna look like a, a, a like a Kurosawa film <laughs> starring MJ. No, you never know, man. You never know. I'm not. No promises. Uh, yeah, no, I, I would also
1: watch MJ in a Tour de Force. So that's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, by the way, can you imagine how great that would be? I'd
2: watch. I'd watch her master dance. You know. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's uh, no. And then little. America, you know, we're working on scripts for season two, and we had we have some great ones written, and we're hoping to shoot that this year. Again, some COVID issues, of course, with that show because it's, you know, a very challenging show to make because there's no standing sets. It's it's an anthology, and you have an all new cast for every show and and, and for every episode. And but we we're doing it uh, really, really, really uh, uh enjoying that. And 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 uh, Sean Hayter is, is our showrunner on that, and she just had this movie Coda at Sundance, which killed. And so you know, we're so excited to have Sean still working on the show and 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 help us on that one so yeah it's uh you know we're we're excited about that by the way like i was surprised like that Little America got nominated for a BAFTA. I was like, BAFTA like nominates American shows? I was like, I didn't even realize that they could do that. And it's like, it's but it was so funny because it was like best international show. I was like, oh, oh shit, it's a Little America is an international show to them. So that was kind of cool. We were like, we were we were kind of fun. The EPs on that show. We have a text thread. We we're like, oh, it's cool. Like a BAFTA is is not something you expect to get nominated for when you make an American show. So we are like, that's truly the most international show in the world. It's characters from all over the world. So
0: and we're talking about sort of pre-production on things, and this third season of Master of None was one where you didn't do that. Was secrecy intended, or was that just something that happened?
2: Yeah, I think we kind of wanted to keep it under wraps. I thought, we kind of thought it was kind of cooler, and it was just like, it's 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 such a pivot, and it's such a thing where it's like, I don't know, it's like, all apologies to, to the press and you guys doing your job. It was like, we just thought this one would be kind of fun to just, just be like, let's let's keep it under wraps and like, shoot it, and... I don't know. There's a lot of people who do it that way, which is and it's kind of cool. Like we we found that kind of to be an interesting approach, and and you know I don't think it's for everything. You know I think for some things it's like let's have a whole ramp up. Let's announce every casting. Let's announce MJ, right? Let's you know. But but for for this season of Master, I think it was like yeah, this is uh, this felt like the right thing to do for this
1: one. Yeah. Well, we do like to wrap uh, every episode, every all these interviews with the same question: What are you watching and enjoying right now?
2: wow it's a good one um i watched mayor of east town last night it just started that so um I, I felt like everyone in my life was watching it so i had to watch it but yeah so, so we're we getting started on that one it's always interesting to see uh kate winslet uh eat food in every shot but uh <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah no I, and and uh this is this. This is I, again. I'm a bad guy to ask this, or maybe I'm a good guy. Daniel knows. It's like I'm just watching old movies, so it's like I watch this weird Robert Altman movie that <laughs> like But like, yeah, it, it's it's. Uh, I'm like trying to keep up. Um, let's see what else have I been watching. Oh, I've been. You know, this is a shameless plug, but um, I was watching Dave season one. Dave season two is coming out. Uh, my girlfriend is on that show, and and it's a it's an amazing show. I can't wait. I, I've seen some of the, the stuff that they've kind of been shooting for season two i think it's gonna be really interesting and great so i'm excited about that show which comes out i think soon after master so
0: indeed (laughs) well thank you so much for joining us alan
1: yeah thank you so much for having me it was fun talking to you guys season three of master of none premieres sunday may 23rd on netflix
0: lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky
1: lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office More than once, actually.
0: Do I have to say? Yes, you do.
1: In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really?
0: Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
1: I never win and tell.
0: Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void rep prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Number five.
1: As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. This week's major new launches are Master of None on Netflix, The Bite on Spectrum Originals, Modoc on Hulu, and In Treatment on HBO. Dan, what you got?
0: We should add first that Amazon's Solos, which premieres on Friday, had an embargo of not just morning of premiere, which would be midnight and is fairly common, but actually into the morning of premiere, specifically after the time that this podcast goes up, so... Hey, we're nothing but good partners to, uh, to Amazon, so no review. Among things that actually do want review consideration, even if you haven't necessarily heard of them, <laughs> The Bite is a Spectrum's original drama. You might know Spectrum's, ri- Spectrum Originals from such shows as The Mad About You Revival and that show with Gabrielle Union and Jessica Alba that aired on Fox at some point. Uh, LA's finest, I believe. So The Byte is the latest thing that you can get on demand on Spectrum, but only if you have Spectrum. Uh, and somewhat amusingly, it's from former podcast guests, uh, The Kings, the creators of The Good Fight and Good Wife. And yeah, so a little bit funny to have a, a show from Robert and Michelle King that lots of people don't know exists. Uh, but it's a funny little show. It is a it is a pandemic shot Zombie Covid Dramedy uh it is a fairly wacky comedy in the vein of Brain Dead which some people will remember as the summer basically people in Washington have brainworms uh comedy that the kings did a couple years ago that I found really uneven um but also in retrospect feels like it was probably very 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 prescient um the bite is is interesting because it's, it's like those strange shows that premiered last April and May where they shot everything. So the characters were yelling into zoom screens because they couldn't share screens together. So, uh, so it's Audra McDonald and. Taylor Schilling as two very different women. One is a doctor. The other one is a dominatrix who live in the same Hell's Kitchen apartment building. Uh, and they begin to realize separately, but then together, that there's a new strain of COVID that can be transmitted by bite and is turning people into something that would be a lot like zombies, except no one wants to use the Z word. It is... Semi-amusing at times, and I would say that the third and fourth episodes, which steer the most into very, very silly, wacky comedy, are quite entertaining, because I would say the third and fourth episodes reminded me a lot of, among other things, Santa Clarita Diet, an underrated Netflix show that uh, that I thought did a good job of being a a zombie suburban satire. This is a different kind of satire. Then the show, though, in the fifth and sixth episodes makes a kind of big mistake and decides to take its premise much more seriously than I think it has any ability to sustain. So it's interesting seeing how they're handling all the COVID stuff. And also interesting that this is a COVID show that's coming back after production is resumed on more normal COVID protocol shows for months. This is, this is very much more in the vein of something like NBC's Connecting or... Freeform's Love in the Time of Corona. Do you remember that those shows exist?
1: I remember that Love in the Time of Corona exists because Freeform sent out a beautiful plant that I still have.
0: I did not get that plant, unfortunately. Um, but I did watch four or five episodes of Love in the Time of Corona, which was not very good, but That's it was four
1: or five more than I watched. It's
0: four or five more than I suspect most people watched. Uh, but it, a lot of those shows at that time were doing funny things where, okay, so no one could be on screen together. But then if you cast people's spouses, that was a way around it. So you get to have here a lot of Broadway stars and you get to find out who their real life spouses are. So Stephen Pasquale is uh, playing a CDC doctor and he has all of his scenes with Philippa Sue and Philippa Sue, who people will know from uh, Hamilton, of course happens to be his wife. Well, how nice that they can share scenes together. How nice that Audra McDonald's uh, uh, husband can share scenes with her. How nice that Michael Urie and his husband get to be in scenes together. Um So, that's kind of a funny thing about it. But anyway, it is, it is not a wholly successful show, but now you at least know it exists. And when anyone tells you it exists, you've heard of it. Um, Modoc, which is on Hulu is a lot like Hulu trying to have its own version of HBO Max's Harley Quinn. So it's kind of taking a snarky, deep dive, animated comic look at a, second tier, or in this case, probably a fourth or fifth tier comic villain with snarky insider humor and lots of references to other Marvel properties that are very, 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 very marginal. And that's kind of funny. Um, it is not as good as Harley Quinn, which I think is a terrific show, but it's amusing. It comes from the same studio that does Robot Chicken, and that is what the augmented puppetry effects looks a lot like. Th- there's a lot of references around pop culture, a whole episode built around a Third Eye Blind concert, for example. So uh, I know you're a big Third Eye Blind fan, Leslie. Sure. I don't know. I I thought I'd take a swing at that, just in case you happen to be a stealth closet Third Eye Blind fan.
1: <laughs> I think I know the one same one song everybody else
0: knows. <laughs> I believe there's actually a second single that is featured in the episode beyond just Semi-Charm Kind of Life. So, uh So, yeah, Uh, Patton Oswalt is the co-creator on the show. He's very, very, very funny as the main character, who's basically a gigantic head slash brain in a robo suit. Lots of very, very good voices are also in it. Uh, Melissa Fumero... Um, Amy Garcia, John Hamm plays Tony Stark slash Iron Man. Uh, you have Nathan Fillion as Alan Seppenwald's favorite superhero, Wonder Man, in at least one episode. It doesn't add up in the kind of human and emotional way that Harley Quinn does, but it's amusing. Not, not bad. It won't cause you pain. And this is the
1: last Marvel show from Jeff Lowe, right?
0: I believe so. Yes. I believe that everything else has been triaged out of existence. <laughs> And that is In-
1: including the rest of the shows that Modoc was was picked up with, right? Because as I remember, it was four animated shows and two specials, all of which kind of poked fun at the original Netflix Marvel model. And I think this might be the last one. And it's again or the only one to survive. It's yeah.
0: it's not bad, and I, and I do think comic fans are are going to be amused by it. Seriously, if you are a Robot Chicken fan, give it a look. I suspect you'll like it i mean robot chicken is a show that that i like and that makes me laugh i i never find it to be cumulatively hugely effective but this is a lot like that and that's fine um and i think i
1: stand corrected i think there's still a hit monkey animated show coming as part of that marvel hulu deal but i don't know for sure it's been a long time since i've checked in on that so let us know let us know on social media marvel people (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> Going over to more dramatic things, HBO has the return of In Treatment. Uh, people will remember, of course, that In Treatment was based on an Israeli format and featured uh, Gabriel Byrne and won Emmys for Glenn Turman and Diane Wiest, if memory serves. And the new version has none of those people. Um, it is instead based around Uzo Aduba, who plays a Los Angeles area, the Baldwin Hills neighborhood in particular. Uh, therapist and basically the premise is the show airs four nights a week each night has a half hour episode based around a different therapy session and the the show remains primarily a phenomenal acting showcase. Uzo Aduba is very good um. The standouts among her patients, uh, Anthony Ramos is, is fantastic as a patient who has to Skype or stream in to talk to her. Uh, some people will be bothered by not having them in the same room. To my mind, this is very reflective of a therapy experience during COVID pandemic. So, And,
1: and that's also reflective of why HBO brought the show back, because it's easier to produce during a pandemic.
0: It is such an easy-to-produce pandemic show. Just about every episode is one or two people in a room talking to each other, usually at a fairly respectful distance. It is the mother of all COVID shows, uh, and you get, you know, four nights a week of programming out of it. So Anthony R- Ramos is the star, Um probably. Uh, John Benjamin Hickey is also terrific. I thought there were a lot of clichés that came out of his arc, which involves a white-collar criminal who basically needs the main character's sign-off for his early release, uh, but he is he is remarkable, and some of the other ones feel like, they're the storylines feel like they're going to get better as they go along. I've seen four weeks' worth of stories for this, so I had to watch 16 episodes to review it, which is a lot. Um, but
1: Did you feel like you were in treatment, Dan? Uh,
0: at, at times, at times, except... Not so much getting healed or anything, um, but, you know, that's that's OK. But no, lot, lots of great acting. And the thing that I've always found about the show is that you really after a week or two can start saying, OK, I'm just not going to watch certain storylines because they aren't required to watch. You can figure out what's happening if you happen to say skip, you know, every Wednesday's episode fairly easy. And I find that to be a very convenient thing about the show. So I would definitely recommend checking out the the Anthony Ramos episodes. Those are uh I believe they're going to be the Sunday episodes. They're they're the first episode of each week and they're great. I think there's a lot to recommend there's a lot to recommend really in in all of the main episodes. I got a little tired of the episodes that were focusing just on Uzo Aduba's character. I think that she's great in the episodes with other characters, but maybe a little less exciting on her own, but this this is a very timely show on on many levels, and I think it has a lot of value in that.
1: Yeah, speaking of uh, in treatment, uh, we will be joined by the showrunners for the HBO revival on next week's episode.
0: And last for this week's uh, critics' corner reviews is the show that you already heard our showrunner spotlight for in the last segment with Alan Yang. That would be the return of Master of None. And as you heard Alan say and explain. It's a very different show this season. It really is. And I think it's important to kind of know that up front. And I think a lot of how you respond to the show is going to be determined by whether the thing that's interesting to you, to you about the show previously was basically Aziza and sorry, cracking wise and the various different food porn subplots. Or were you interested in kind of the relationship exploration side of it? Because this is much more towards that. And I think that it means that the tone is different. I would say it is a a darker tone. I would say it is often a a more melancholy tone. But this was all discussed in our conversation with Alan. Uh, But I do think that uh, Naomi Aki is... Fantastic. She is the new face in this because Lena Waithe was, of course, in previous seasons as Denise. And so the first couple episodes, little bit hit and miss. Third episode, I could have done without it entirely, but it's only thirty minutes. And and the fourth episode to me was tremendous, and another one of those episodes that I'm already saying is guaranteed to be in a best episodes of the year list at the end of the year. It is primarily focused on Naomi Aki's character and her fertility drama. And it is just a, a beautiful, nearly full hour of TV. And, and that one in particular, I, rec- I recommend extremely highly. And the fifth episode I also thought was was extremely good. I thought it tied things together well and did things to make the first two episodes better for me. Uh, so, so just, so stick with it is what I'm telling people is, is you might find the first couple episodes off putting because it's not the show that you watched before and, and it's, it's not. You, you just have to know that. But I think that the last two episodes make it really totally worthwhile, especially the fourth one. But the fifth one also has, has highlights as well. So just, you know, for the, for the 30th or 40th time, probably even more if you include the interview with Alan, it is not the same show it was when it was about Aziz Ansari's character and his various romantic travails in New York City. Don't expect it to be, and meet it on its own terms, and I think it's worthwhile. So that is this week's Critics' Corner.
1: And that feels like a good place to wrap things up. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. Thank you for listening to TV's top five, the Hollywood Reporters TV podcast. We'll be back next week when we will be joined by not only the entreatment showrunners, but as well as a surprise guest that we could not be more excited about. See what I did Once there,
0: again, you're implying it's either Matthew Perry or the monkey. And it is neither of those two people. I do not want our listeners to be disappointed very much. <laughs> anyway, be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, please rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It doesn't take much time, but it really does improve our placement in different lists on different services. We're always happy to chat with you guys on the Twitter. Let us know what you liked, what you didn't like. What you'd like to hear going forward. Exactly what what we blew entirely, all of that stuff. But if you have questions for future podcasts and I think next week might be a, a decent week for a mailbag segment, perhaps a, a what questions do you have coming out of uh, upfronts or something to that effect, you can email us at TV's top 5 at thR.com. That's TV's top five, the numeral five at thR.com. until next week. Leslie.
1: until next week, Dan.